action! This is Remembering Yugoslavia, the show exploring the memory of a country that no longer exists. I'm your usher, Peter Korchnik. It was a film that got me on the path to Yugoslavia. A quarter century ago now, I saw Emir Kusturica's underground at a cinema club in Bratislava where I was going to university. And the history the film told, well, I just had to learn more, and here we are. Similar to music, Yugoslav and post-Yugoslav film has been an eye-opening window into the region's cultures and history. And to the cinema is where we're going to go in today's episode. But before we do that, I want to acknowledge a few new supporters of these here travels through Yugoslavia's memory. Thank you Georgia, Jacob, Ksenia, Leila, Matej, and Sean for your donations. You keep the film projector running, and I appreciate you more than I can say. Have you got your ticket to the cinematic epic of remembering Yugoslavia? If the podcast has made your life better in any way, consider joining Georgia, Jacob, Ksenia, Leila, Matej, Sean, and many others in helping to keep the show running. This is episode 72, by the way. Even YouTube isn't free if you think about it. No matter the amount or currency, $10 per month or 100 euros one time, no matter the method, Patreon, PayPal, or subscription, every little bit helps. Go to rememberingyugoslavia.com slash donate, or follow the link in the episode description in your podcast listening app and donate today. The history of Yugoslav film began already during World War II, as the communists, well-trained in the Soviet propaganda model, knew film's potential in mobilizing the masses for their revolutionary goals. In late 1944, the Yugoslav People's Liberation Army established a film section within their propaganda division, as well as a federal film company. Yugoslavia was utterly devastated in the war, and so initially, they mostly imported Soviet feature and documentary films, which they showed along their own newsreels to the masses in mobile cinemas. Between 1945 and 1950, 80% of imported films were made in the USSR. The first Yugoslav films were documentaries, which started coming out as early as 1945. The first domestic feature film, Slavica by Vieko Afric, premiered in 1947. Further features followed in short order, all with propaganda-serving storylines about the just-concluded, gloriously victorious people's liberation struggle. The masses ate them up. Film, which Lenin had proclaimed the most important art, was not only an ideological but also a unifying medium in Yugoslavia. The Yugoslavs were also concerned with creating an infrastructure for film production. A film archive, a film school, and republic-based film companies were established, like Triglav Film in Ljubljana, Jadran Film in Zagreb, Bosna Film in Sarajevo, Vardar Film in Skopje, and Avala and Zvezda Film in Belgrade, where the film studio Košutnjak was also built. The propaganda phase of Yugoslav cinematography ended after the split with the Soviet Union. Beginning at the turn of the 1950s, Yugoslavia launched the development of its own independent national film industry. Western films, mostly from the US, but also from Western Europe, made their way to Yugoslav silver screens as well, and in fact after 1950 dominated the market. As years went by and the popular memory of the homegrown revolution and liberation receded in time, the regime promoted its identity, built around the narratives of the people's liberation struggle and brotherhood and unity, through popular culture, including film. 
Cue partisan movies in which the wartime Yugoslav People's Army vanquishes the occupying Nazi Germans, often in spectacular fashion. Andrew Horton called partisan films an instructive example of filmmakers generating a national identity and history through the medium of cinema. Partisan film became a central element of Yugoslav cinematography, particularly in the 1960s and 70s. This is of course the period where we saw the most intensive construction of monuments to the same ends. Of the 890 films made in Yugoslavia between 1945 and 1990, 350, or nearly 40%, were war or partisan films. And they were the best produced and promoted, and most spectacular and seen. A lot of these films, especially about the most epic and legendary battles, were co-produced with Hollywood and featured American and other Western actors, including Yul Brynner, Kurt Jurgens, and Frank Nero in Velko Bulaic's Battle of the River Neretva from 1969, the most expensive film produced in Yugoslavia. Richard Burton played Tito wearing his original jacket in Stipe Delic's Battle of Sutjeska, or the Fifth Offensive, in 1973. Orson Welles, who called Tito the greatest man in the world, starred in both of these blockbusters. Pablo Picasso made one of the posters for the former movie. The late Greek composer Mikis Theodorakis scored a lot of these films that emulated American filmmaking practices, with their focus on heroism, spectacular action, and simplistic fight of good and evil. These so-called Gibanitsa westerns thus ceased to be strictly Yugoslav films for Yugoslav audiences and served instead as education as well as propaganda tools for foreign audiences. Tito, who watched on average one film a day, with western as his favorite genre, loved to hobnob with global film stars, both in Yugoslavia and on his visits abroad. The 1972 epic Walter Defense Sarajevo fictionalized and immemorialized the wartime activities of the local fighter Walter Peric. It's a classic that has become one of the most popular Yugoslav movies of all time, featuring one of the most referenced lines of all time. Quoting films is a popular Balkan pastime, so this is a big deal. Sie wissen, wer Walter ist? Sagen Sie mir sofort seinen Namen. Ich werde ihn Ihnen zeigen. Sehen Sie diese Stadt? Das ist Walter. The production of partisan films declined in the late 1970s, and they met their final demise after Tito died. In Czechoslovakia, we had our own war movies and our own ideology based on liberation by the Red Army, so Gibanica Westerns didn't make it there. What did make it to our silver and lighter TV screens were crowd westerns. The movies featuring Vinatu, Chief of the Apaches, were co-productions of Yadran film with German companies that adapted the novels by Karl May featuring the so-called Red Gentleman. These precursors to spaghetti westerns were shot in the 1960s in today's Croatia, in Paklanica as well as Krka, Velebit, Zrmanja and so on. Many Yugoslav actors were cast, a lot of them as Native Americans and other extras. Winnetou, from 1963, released in the West as Apache Gold, was the second most attended film in Czechoslovakia cinemas of all time. My favorite, though, was The Treasure of Silver Lake, the first in the series, filmed at Plitvica Lakes. Like all pale-faced boys in Czechoslovakia, I grew up with Winnetou, played by the Frenchman Pierre Brice and dubbed by Stanislav Fischer, and his German friend Old Shatterhand, played by the American Lex Barker. Zlato pro and I really, really wanted to go to the places where the films were shot. With Winnetou, Yugoslavia also became a mountain paradise that was the wild west of my imagination. 
I rode across the plains of Texas Lica, scaled the craggy hills of New Mexico Dalmatia, canoed down the rios of impossible blue-green in search of adventure, truth, and the common good. I am Diana Jelača. I hail from Yugoslavia. I identify as a Yugoslav. Jelača is a film studies scholar from Zagreb via Banja Luka, now based in New York City, where she teaches at Brooklyn College. Among other things, I study Yugoslav and post-Yugoslav cinema and uh, feminist film studies, women's film history. Yugoslav film, in fact film in general, as a cultural sphere, is dominated by men. Most texts out there from Wikipedia on down list and discuss male directors. If you asked me before this episode to name movie directors from the Yugoslav era, I'd start with Emir Kusturica, of course, and think of a few more, Rajko Grlic, Dusan Makaveev, Goran Paskaljevic. But what about women in Yugoslav cinema? Women most typically or most frequently appear in front of the camera. As actresses, that was the job that was most available, most prominent. Yugoslav cinema is not an outlier in that sense. That first Yugoslav movie, Slavica, was rare in that it featured a female lead. Partisan films did include female characters in recognition of women's role in the war, including as combatants. However, after gender equality was officially accomplished, women in films made in Yugoslavia increasingly reverted to the traditional roles. In the familial context, we see a grandmother, mother, sister, wife, or girlfriend, Balanced in the societal context with a housewife, worker, generally a member of the working class, but also a consumer and sex object, often gaining agency only in relation to a male character. But as usual, the story is always a bit more complicated than that. While they were in the minority, women were present behind the camera too, as editors, screenwriters, costume designers, a number of different jobs, including directors. So this is the part that is not historicized as much, written into film history books or textbooks, the few that there are with regards to Yugoslav cinema. Štefica Cvek u Rajlama života, Štefica Cvek in the Jaws of Life, a 1984 film by Rajko Grlić based on the eponymous novel by the late Dubravka Ugrašić, stars a female TV editor working on a series about the titular character with their love lives unfolding in parallel. But I'm getting ahead of myself. There were indeed women film and television directors in Yugoslavia. In her work, Jelača highlights one in particular, Sofia Soja Jovanović. The first woman feature film director in socialist Yugoslavia. She started out as a theater director and then graduated or moved slowly uh, into film directing under the mentorship of Slavko Vorkapić. So she made her first feature film in 1954, which was a time where Yugoslav cinema was still in its nascent phase. And uh, that was a film called Suspect Individual, based on a play by Branislav Nušić, a satirical play. Very interestingly, the film starts out as a theatrical play on stage, and then the characters get off the stage and move into the film world. So she kind of shows her own movement from theatrical direction into cinema. She follows this up uh, with a very popular film, Priests, Chira and Spira, in 1957, and additional adaptations of well-known literature like DR, which is short for Doctor, or Eagles Fly Early, which is based on the novel of Branko Čopić in 1966. In the opening scene of Pop Chira i Pop Spira, that is Orthodox Priests, we see a windmill centering a farm on a lake. Then two black pigs cross the field, and that pretty much sums up the message. All of her films are extremely popular with the audiences. Most of them are comedies. 
So this is the kind of paradox. While Soya Yoban, which is not historicized as much as she should be, in my opinion, she was, and perhaps to this day for people who remember or know Yugoslav culture, is a household name. Her films were extremely well-known and popular, not necessarily critically acclaimed, as comedies tend to be in film studies and film scholarship and more generally film criticism taken as lighter fare, if we take that as being sort of the typical way that culture is received. Comedy is always on the lower end of sort of more middle brow or low brow aspect or scale of things. And I think this is one of the reasons why her work hasn't been given prominence in the historical writing on Yugoslav cinema. And I think it's unfair because through comedy, especially satire, which she was very invested in, you can probe many important social issues in subversive ways. It has been noted by some historians that her work appears lighthearted, but nevertheless has this sort of slightly critical streak. There is a level of cynicism there that permeates the work. And interestingly, in the 1960s, late 1960s, moving into 1970s, at the height of the Yugoslav black wave, which is probably the most famous period of Yugoslav cinema, most studied and most celebrated, Soya Jovanovic moves more into work in television. More about Black Wave in a little bit. So she evolves and uh, goes into television and talks about television as being an avenue that actually gave her more opportunity and in some ways more freedom. Many scholars have pointed out that historically speaking, women have found more venues and more freedom in working in television because again, stakes are lower in a way. Television if we again talk about the, the scales of elitism versus a more approachable popular art and cultural production, television is more accessible and not considered as elite. So there's less gatekeeping, if you will. So Soya Ivanovich spends the rest of her directorial life working in television, producing television series and uh, TV dramas, in particular TV comedies usually, staying true to her tradition. Two of her TV dramas slash comedies that I particularly find very uh, illuminating are Australia is Far Away from 1969 and We Apologize, We Truly Apologize from 1976. Both of those are focused on working class milieu and women's experiences. <laughs> In We Apologize, We Truly Apologize, a teacher who seems vaguely dissatisfied with her lot succumbs to the advances of a persistent farmer as they travel through Serbia. The soundtrack includes the Bielodugme song Takutia Mala Moja Kad Ljubi Bosanac, This is How It Is When a Bosnian Man Kisses. The popular film was once voted as the best TV comedy and one of the 10 best dramas in the history of Serbian television. This is something that Soja Jovanovic actually deals with time and again, both in her films and then later in her TV dramas. And the TV dramas increasingly become disillusioned with the position specifically of a working class woman or a working class person's experience. Sort of the feeling that the working class person is increasingly getting left behind. So we see some criticism there that is not otherwise necessarily overtly articulated. Though Jovanovic did not otherwise make a huge mark cinematically, I would argue that she has created a legacy that has only served 
to uh, become a platform for all the women behind the camera who have come after her, both in film and in television. She opened doors. She showed that it was possible for women not only to exist, but to thrive in this particular medium. Women directors were absent in the other well-known genre of Yugoslav film, the Black Wave. Primarily known as New Yugoslav Film, Black Wave was, quote, a central event in Yugoslav cinematic history. This cinematic movement at the polar opposite of partisan films lasted about a decade, from 1963 to 1973, and was marked with filmmakers charting a new course for Yugoslav film. One marked with neorealism, experimental cinematic approaches like montage, and perhaps more importantly, political critique and subversion. Where the mainstream depicted heroic partisan battles forging the new socialist man, new Yugoslav film featured people from society's margins, like the unemployed, the homeless, criminals, prostitutes, beggars, smugglers, poor peasants, as well as socialist citizens acting as dissatisfied, estranged, even loser anti-heroes. Black Wave was actually a derogatory term a Communist Party official used to describe these films in a newspaper article. The, quote, distorted portrayal of the socialist Yugoslav society that negates its positives earned some of the filmmakers' prison terms and bans on their works. Many of the directors of the new Yugoslav film, or Black Wave, came out of the cine clubs, kino klubovi, amateur filmmaking, started by making short films, and then eventually some of them graduated into making feature-length films, forming this celebrated particular film movement, shown internationally and lauded internationally, and just really incredible period, creatively speaking, for Yugoslav cinema. There were women who were members of the cine clubs, we know that as well, and they made short experimental films. But none of them, quote-unquote, graduated into making feature-length films during this period. I can mention Divna Jovanovic or... Tatiana Ivančić, Tatiana Dunja Ivanišević, uh, Bojana Vujanović, Erna Banovac, just to name a few, who we have records of their experimental short film work, which is incredible. And um, Tatiana Dunja Ivanišević, by the way, is often credited for making one of the first experimental feminist films in socialist Yugoslavia in 1967 the film called Zemsko, which roughly translates into female, it's sort of a slang term. And she actually spoke about what made her stop making additional movies after this. She was apparently discouraged by her male colleagues in the cine club that she was a member of. Uh, and uh, there was a quote from her, I am paraphrasing, where she said, even though they were wonderful and very friendly, I got a distinct sense that my male fellow filmmakers in the film club preferred me to, for me to be in front of the camera rather than behind the camera. So that was discouraging and she stopped. This may or may not be indicative of the broader reason why women didn't move into feature filmmaking in this particular period. The other acclaimed movement in Yugoslav cinema was the output of the Zagreb School of Animation, which earned Yugoslavia an Oscar in 1961 for Surugat, The Substitute, by Dusan Vukocic, the first non-American animated film to accomplish this. <laughs> Established in 1972, the World Festival of Animated Films, or AnimaFest, still takes place in Zagreb. By the 1980s, Yugoslavia was a near-confederation of republics, each with its own economy. 
Each republic already had its own film production company, of course, and then the decentralization stemming from the 1974 constitution, combined with the loosening of discourse after Tito's death, allow new, previously taboo themes to appear in movies made in Yugoslavia, from more overt critique of the socialist regime to ethnicity, national myths, and religion. Check out episode 36, Dream of the Yugoslav 80s, for more on this period in Yugoslavia's cultural history. The so-called Prague School, which included directors educated in my former homeland's capital, rose to prominence. Its most notable success came in 1985, when Emir Kusturica won his first Palme d'Or at the Cannes Film Festival for Otac na službenom putu, when father was away on business. The film's title is a euphemism for the father being interned at Goliotok, perhaps. The aforementioned Rajko Grlic and Goran Paskalevich, as well as Goran Markovic, were also in this group, and like Kusturica, continued making movies after Yugoslavia's disintegration. Some of the most popular, and again most oft-quoted, Yugoslav films were made in the 1980s. Slobodan Shian made two of the best-known ones in the canon. In Kototamopeva, who's that singing over there from 1981, a group of people representing a cross-section of Serbian society, as well as some piglets, travel by bus to Belgrade on the eve of Nazi Germany's invasion. The film is framed by the song Za Beograd to Belgrade, performed by a duo of Romani musicians. It was voted the best Yugoslav film of all time and remains a classic. And Maratonci Trče Počasni Krug, the Marathon family, a classic comedy from 1982, follows a multi-generational family of undertakers in the 1930s. What happens after the disintegration of Yugoslavia is that the industry, Yugoslav film industry, splinters into separate national, nationalized film industries. Thus completing the process that had started decades before. Diana Jelača is also the author of the book Dislocated Screen Memory, Narrating Trauma in Post-Yugoslav Cinema, which came out in 2016. And there is this sort of, I sometimes refer to it as a custody fight, with regards to the Yugoslav film legacy, where some people, driven by nationalist passions, are adamant to reappropriate the legacy that is decidedly Yugoslav and trans-ethnic into separate, pure ethno-nationalist units. Therefore, Croatian cinema during the Yugoslav period or Serbian cinema during the Yugoslav period, when in fact, if you look at those productions and the, the, those films, they're so intermixed and so Yugoslav that how do you exa- actually decide what's Croatian, what's Serbian, what's Bosnian or Macedonian, etc. within that. So it's all strange. We see a lot of historical films with pre-World War II storylines from national histories. Serbian cinematography in particular seems to be replete with these. And there's also a strong streak of what I might call nationalist cinema. To name just one example, the Croatian director Jakov Sedlar, who had started making movies with ethno-nationalist themes already in the 1980s, with the support of the Catholic Church, no less. His most recent creation is the docudrama Bilo jednom u Hrvatskoj, Once Upon a Time in Croatia, about the life of his good friend, independent Croatia's first president, Franjo Tuđman, starring none other than Kevin Spacey. Otherwise, films made after 1991 in Yugoslavia's successor countries deal with a range of themes. For my purpose, I'm of course most interested in films that deal with the Yugoslav period. I was born in Jajce and guessed the date on 29th of November. And uh, as a kid, I always thought that the flags were waving for my birthday and that people were really celebrating just my birthday. 
Sanin Pejkovic is a film scholar in Sweden where he has lived since 1994. He teaches film studies at universities and writes about film for various Swedish publications, focusing on memories of the former Yugoslavia mediated in film and television. Art historian Dina Jordanova opined that in the former Yugoslavia, quote, reassessing the communist years is not a major theme in cinema, partly because this critical project had already been carried out in the 1980s, and partly because of the gruesome breakup that imposed a different set of concerns around the aura of Tito's legacy. But that's only true in part. There are mostly two ways of uh, remembering the former Yugoslavia. And uh, the first way would be through a very exaggerated nostalgia. And the second way would be through maybe more of an uh, optics of uh, tyranny or that Yugoslavia was a prison for for the nations, Tamnica Naroda. The most films would fall in some of those groups. I actually was thinking about some comparisons with the cinematography of the former Czechoslovakia, you know, where I'm from, and films made after 1989 about the socialist period. And they follow two tracks, and they actually track exactly with what you're saying. One group of films is kind of a nostalgically tinged, uh, often comedic stories, but they have a dark undertone or, you know, with the presence of the regime. But that's always mocked, you know, presented in like a, you know, look at these idiots, you know, ruling us kind of thing, right? Or evil people. Uh, you know, a lot of coming-of-age stuff. Uh, and the other one was uh, kind of serious dramas, thrillers about the evils of communism, you know, very dark stories about how the place functioned, you know, lots of secret police stuff, uh, opportunists, you know, taking advantage of the regime and so on. In terms of Yugoslav film, what would you say were some of the factors or reasons uh, these two different groupings or tracks exist? This is something that is being shared throughout the whole Eastern Central Europe and the former Soviet Union as well. A few colleagues of mine have have been researching post-Soviet cinema cultures and they would identify almost the same progress in this, that they would have like films with more of a totalitarian perspective on the past and some films with mild nostalgia. We do not always have to consider what happened in wards in the countries. We have to remember that the films that we are looking at are often uh, also festival films, and they are dependent on co-productions and on the fundings and funds from different pitches and festivals. And in a way, we can see how festivals are shaping this narrative in a way, you know. And we could see that in in Romania with the so-called Romanian New Wave films. Those films are in a way, successful in A, B festivals, film festivals, but in Romania, almost no one is watching them because they are being seen as a more orientated towards Western audiences. In the former East Germany, it's Goodbye Lenin versus The Lives of Others, both of which were in relatively wide distribution in the English-speaking world. The former film shows a positively tinged view of the recently collapsed regime with its products and rituals, while the latter centers around Stasi's surveillance of private citizens. But what I would just add here is that, in a way, Yugo-nostalgia is a a kind of perverted (laughs) topic, uh, because the same people that are, in a way, longing back for the country were the same people that destroyed the country. So, in a way, it's very interesting to see what people are what do they actually mean with being nostalgics for a country that they all destroyed? 
that is not always the case of other former socialist countries, you know. So the totalitarian perspective was in a way a mirrored version of Yugo-nostalgic way of portraying the past. In the Slovenian film Outsider by Andrei Kosak from 1997, a teenager from a mixed marriage, Bosnian father and a JNA officer and Slovenian mother, navigates love and punk rock in his new adopted hometown as nearby the country's leader navigates the end of his life. The creation Nedao Bog Vecek Zla, God Forbid Something Worse Would Happen by Snežana Tribuson from 2002 is a story of an enamored boy becoming an enamored young man in the 1960s Bielovar. Like most coming-of-age stories, the film, based on a novel by Goran Tribuson and scored by Darko Rundek, carries a nostalgic tinge, though to be sure, it's for youth. Political stances from both sides of the spectrum do get heard, though. The socialist reality surfaces in Tito's speeches on the radio and scenes around the relay of youth. And Rajko Grlče's co-production Karaula, Border Post from 2006, takes the Yugoslav People's Army as its vehicle for a look at the former country. The border post is at Lake Ohrid between Yugoslavia and Albania. The year is 1987 and the film a comedy, as many films involving the military are, until they aren't. Similar to the nostalgic-ish movies in the former Czechoslovakia, these post-Yugoslav productions have a comedic element, but there's always a dark undercurrent. Many end with death. And finally, Tito. Most films centered around his character were comedies. One of the first films to come out after the Wars of Dissolution started was Tito i ja, Tito and I, by the Prague school guy Goran Markovic, released in 1992. A precocious 10-year-old boy embarks on a pilgrimage of sorts to see his idol in person, only to find out Tito is not who he seems. Former Black Wave director Želimir Zilnik's mockumentary Tito po drugi put među Srbima, Tito among the Serbs for the second time from 1994, featured a Tito impersonator walking the streets of Belgrade, interacting with citizens, many of whom treated him as the real deal. And Marshal, or Marshal Tito's Spirit by Vinko Brešan from 1999, takes place on the island of Vis, where Yugoslav partisan veterans start seeing Tito's ghost. Shenanigans ensue, including an armed insurrection to restore socialism and nostalgic tourism to capitalize on the event. Also worthy of mention here is the documentary Cinema Comunisto by Mila Turajlic from 2011. Tito's personal projectionist and other talking heads framed a narrative around a big man's love of film to tell the story of Yugoslavia as it was created by its film industry. By collating images from fiction films made in Yugoslavia, write Anna Grgic and Raluca Jakob in the Frame Cinema Journal, Cinema Comunisto is a film museum, an archive of cinematographic memory which exemplifies the capacity and power of film to make visible that which is no longer there. It showcases how a nation can be constructed through images and how cinema functioned as a propaganda tool. All that said, as you might expect... With regards to the prominent themes, of course, trauma and war and memory and coming to terms with what has transpired is a very prominent one. And when we say trauma, obviously that's a very broad term. Typically it means a psychic wound. It means living with something that is a a shocking, difficult experience that one has to find a way to work through, survive, and um, possibly, hopefully be able to live with one way or another. Atami Borian at the University of Zagreb divides post-Yugoslav war-themed movies into two categories. First, films that deal with war directly by portraying events on or around the battlefield, or indirectly by portraying the effects and consequences of war in society. These films were in large part colored by nationalist themes highlighting victimhood, self-defense, fear of ethnic other, and so on, and they seem to have been intended mostly for domestic audiences. 
The other grouping are the movies that have found international acclaim, and that basically manifest Balkanism by portraying the plays as primitive, exotic, and wild. I found myself a willing and welcoming audience for these self-Balkanizing films, beginning with Underground, which by the way also won a Palme d'Or, and later films by Emir Kusturica. Le Pasela Le Pogore, Pretty Village, Pretty Flame from 1996 by Serjan Dragojevic, and Pred Dojdod, Before the Rain from 1994 by the Macedonian Milcho Manchevsky are the best-known examples here of movies portraying gratuitous violence, people's savage nature, vengeance, and other stereotypical themes. I'm highly critical of Emir Kusturica and Serjan Dragojevic, not only in aspects of filmmaking, which of course is highly problematic, per se, but I would say that, of course, their own careers and how they profited from nationalistic filmmaking is highly, highly problematic. In recent years, Kusturica took a nationalist turn, all the way to shaking hands with the presidents Vucic and Putin. And also Dragojevic, his second film, maybe, Le Pasela Le Pogore, which he filmed while the war was still raging in eastern Bosnia. How did he do that? He had to do some deals with both Karadzic and some people say even Mladic and how they, they have to guarantee them the security, you know, during fights in, in 95. There are so many diff- other aspects, not only about film topics and film perspective, but also filmmaking being part of this mafia cultural way of doing things in in former Yugoslavia as well. Similar to the period after Tito's death, after 2000, that is after the death of Franjo Tuđman and the removal from power of Slobodan Milosevic, a more critical treatment of the war emerged. Nichia Zemlja, No Man's Land from 2001 by Danis Tanovic, won the Oscar for the best foreign film with its portrayal of war's absurdities with dark humor. Notably, though it was billed as a Bosnian film, it was a co-production that included several ex-Yugoslav countries and international partners, though no Bosnian funding. One could make a very convincing argument that in the contemporary landscape of post-Yugoslav cinema, Yugoslavia is recreated time and again, because if you look at the list of co-productions that are happening, it's sort of a definition of Yugoslavia. All of the countries are working time and again together to co-produce films because neither of the individual industries is strong enough to churn out a number of films on its own. So co-productions are a way to keep going and survive. The film Karaula I mentioned earlier was the first co-production of all former Yugoslav republics. In all of the former republics, we had different uh, film production companies. So people in, in different ways cooperated a lot during the existence of the country. And then after 91 or 92, a lot of these physical ways of relating to each other, they were still there. Just because the country fell apart, it didn't mean that these people who collaborated 10 years earlier would per definition, become enemies. Some of the producers saw that, of course, you once had a market that was like 22 million possible viewers. Now you are, in a way, just (laughs) you have your own country. So pretty early on, uh, I would say uh, late 90s already, people start collaborating in order both to get finances and co-productions, but also to get the possibilities of screening films for each other. But if we're looking at cultural production in the in the whole region, as it is called, or as, as Judah called it, Yugosphere, we can most definitely see that 
a lot of directors and film people are collaborating with each other. And this is not only because of the nostalgia, but because of the economical issues. The thing about film, it's so expensive to produce. In order to even break even, you really need a huge amount of of audiences to watch your film. Because if you are uh, making a film in Croatia, you will have a smaller amount of money and smaller amount of market to screen your films just for the home audiences. So a lot of these films are being co-produced. And in a way, when you co-produce something, and this goes for the whole co-production area of filmmaking, you have to add something from the co-producing country. So if we are watching fiction films, I would say that a lot of those films are being, in a way, watered down by all of the pitches and all of the co-production demands. If you're making something that is not hugely nationalistic, then we'll have, of course, a bigger chance of distributing it uh, throughout the former Yugoslavia as well. So in a way, maybe these films are now being more balanced and are, in a way, more tolerant towards the common past. But for those films that are being co-produced, you have to find something that still applies for other countries in the region as well. Like partisan films in Yugoslavia, Bosnian war movies will inevitably be at the top of any list of recommendations of films to see from and about the region. This is nothing that is really abnormal about this. I mean, for Germany, it took two decades for the film directors to start to make the films about the Holocaust and the Second World War in a more nuanced manner. And we are still seeing films about the Vietnam War produced in the United States. So, I mean, there are, of course, two reactions to this. Oh, no, another war film. Or this only happened like 25, 30 years ago. We still need to dwell into that trauma. If we put that into perspective, I would still say that uh, we will watch a lot of other war films. There are uh, pl- plenty of war themes ahead of us because... Uh, Um, I think that there are a lot of topics that are still uncovered. There are many different stories that are needed to be told in a way, and not only from Bosnia, but from the whole region. The Remembering Yugoslavia podcast is one of the ways these stories get told. This one-man show, yes, I am it, takes countless hours to produce, from research to interviews to writing to editing. But ultimately, it too is also a co-production. I am only able to keep it going thanks to the generous support of listeners like you who care about these stories and the memory of the country that no longer exists. Your gift of any size will help me keep the lights on. Automatic monthly contributions via Patreon or PayPal or subscription are both convenient and they make a difference month in and month out. Visit rememberingyouslavia.com donate or follow the link in your podcast listening app and make a gift today. Trauma is definitely a topic that's... Uh prominent in post-Yugoslav cinema, but you point out that women directors treat that subject uh, differently and in a different way than, than men might. How do they talk about trauma? How do they treat that subject? Because it is very different from what I've seen and from what I understand from your writing. Here, I just want to be really careful not to essentialize. When I talk about women directors and women's film work, I don't want to make even an inadvertent assumption or suggestion that everything that is female directed that is made by women directors has something more in common than 
male directors, etc. So I'm looking at tendencies. I don't want to essentialize women's work or even the category of woman. Just because there's a woman behind the camera as a filmmaker, it doesn't mean that a film isn't necessarily going to be progressive, non-problematic, or even feminist. There's no guarantees of these things. And in fact, male directors have made incredible feminist films as well. But when looking at cinema and trauma, I did notice a tendency that there's something different with regards to the tone, the register, the approach to the emotional aspects of this question and of this really difficult theme and experience. So I can point out um, a couple of examples of this. Aida Begic, a filmmaker from Bosnia who makes Snow, for example, in 2008, This is a very quiet film. This is a film about very dramatic events that is very quiet, that is removed from warfare as such, from bombastic depictions of wartime events. It takes place in a little village where most of the residents are women who are all dealing with unspeakable loss of their loved ones who are men. So the implication is that this is related to the atrocities that took place in Srebrenica at the end of the war in Bosnia in 1995, where the majority of people who were systematically executed were men, and the survivors are women. And these women are looking for the remains of their loved ones. But the tenderness and the care with which they relate to one another and the way in which what is not spoken is the most important thing that is still always there that void is so incredibly present and we can't speak directly of that void, we speak around it, is something that is really incredibly present in that film. And that's just one example. There's many others, including very prominently, probably most prominently, Yasmila Zhbanić's work, another Bosnian filmmaker who, in my opinion, is one of the most important contemporary filmmakers in the world. She has time and again made films that are also speaking around an experience without making a spectacle out of trauma, out of victimhood, out of suffering, but speaking around it, thinking through how does one live or survive in the aftermath of it? How does one come to terms? Is that even possible? And how does one not heal? Often that's sort of an impossibility, if you will, but learn to live with that void and with the absence or in the aftermath of going through and having experienced unspeakable traumas. Yasmila Zhbanici's Quo Vadis Aida won Best Film at the 2021 European Film Awards and was nominated for an Oscar in the Best International Feature category in 2022. It is the first fiction film about the Srebrenica genocide. When Yasmila Zhbanic made Quo Vadis Aida, which came out in 2020, we were quarter of a century away from the genocide in Srebrenica. And No filmmaker from the region made a feature narrative film about it. There were documentaries, but not feature narrative films. And in my conversation with Yasmin, I asked her, where did it come from, this this need to make a film that is really such a challenge because she had the pressure from all sides and the burden of the world on her back. A lot of expectations and a lot of controversies because everyone knew or what they wanted the film to be in a way. And she said that she kept waiting for someone to make this film, 
the make the film about this particular event and it wasn't happening. So she decided, I guess it's going to have to be me. And of course it was going to have to be her because she has shown time and again in her previous work that she goes there, she tackles things that others don't or that are maybe too taboo or too controversial, not something that one would want to shoulder. For example, when she made Grbavica in 2006, that was also the first feature narrative film to tackle the subject of mass rape that happened during the Bosnian War as well. The titular Aida is a fictional character, a translator and interpreter for UN troops, as the Bosnian Serb army conquers the town and takes its men to be murdered. The story tracks her attempts to save her husband and sons and then the aftermath of it all. And uh, that was a matter of controversy as well. Some people were upset that she created a fictional character when there's so many real existing stories of survivors and the victims. Something that's completely understandable is when one has such a pressure and burden to depict accurately, if you will, events that are still such an open wound in Bosnian society and the region. And obviously, there's also still denial that this ever happened. That she wanted to give herself or leave to herself some creative license and in creating a fictional character, that was the creative license to give herself some breathing room. So Aida is sort of in between in this world because she is in a way, as a, as a Bosniak Muslim woman, she is in a precarious position as the Serbian Bosnian Serb army is encroaching. But she's also protected more so than her fellow Bosnians on the one hand because she is a woman and women weren't targeted, weren't murdered. But most of all, she's protected because she works for the UN. So she has that pass, if you will. She has a safe way out where others don't. And so this in-between position is really fascinating and how the film negotiates that. And of course, her desperate drive and effort to save her husband and her two sons. And we see many other stories around Aida, other families and their losses. And there's sort of these fleeting passing moments when you see a young woman being dragged off, we can only assume, to be raped. We see the politics of it all, the Dutch UN contingent failing miserably to protect the so-called safe zone, which turned out to be anything but. And so what Yasmin Lashbanic does in such a gripping way is to convey the anguish, the increasingly desperate anguish of this woman And then in the final chapter of the film, the question of how do we live in the aftermath of such an impossible loss? We are transported into sort of present day, vaguely present day Srebrenica, Bosnia, and the situation in which Aida is looking for the remains of her loved ones and finds them, which is something that some people are still going through, still looking. It gives one not consolation, but some kind of closure, at least partial, to bury the remains of their loved ones. So if one is still looking for those remains a quarter of a century later, you can only imagine what anguish that is. But also the fact that when she returns to Srebrenica, she is going to go back to being a teacher and she will be teaching a mix of both the kids of the survivors and the children of the perpetrators who are living next door sitting at a children's recital side by side. And this is the reality of many people in Bosnia and post-Yugoslav region today in Srebrenica included. In Serbia, Kovaris Aida was only projected in Novi Pazar, a Bosniak majority town. It wasn't shown in cinemas or television in Serbia or Republika Srpska, except in Srebrenica proper. 
The film released the same year that did get wide publicity in the Serbian world was Dara of Jasenovac, which in no uncertain terms showed the suffering of Serbs in the World War II era concentration camp in the independent state of Croatia. The film served as a counter to the genocide narrative, Serbs as perpetrators, by highlighting Serbs as victims. Those kinds of um, refusals to acknowledge the existence of a film on the one hand show that the powers that be are afraid and understand the power of cinema and also be show that um, people will still be able to see these films. It's just a question of whether they want to or not. As Jordanova writes about the cinema of Yugoslavia and Southeast Europe, quote, Coming to terms with the past has been a central topic in public discourses, and the complex and powerful role of memory in the contemporary formation of national identities has become an essential problem in almost all artistic and cultural practices. Trauma is politicized time and again. When it gets co-opted into these ethno-nationalist discourses, it becomes a currency, and therefore competition ensues as to who has experienced greater trauma, who has experienced trauma at all, and whose trauma is completely denied, ignored, as if it's not there. And so it was fascinating and troubling, honestly, to see the competing discourses between these two films that were inadvertently, or not inadvertently, by some people deliberately pitted against one another, as if somehow the traumas of World War II and of the concentration camps and the mass murdering and genocide of people that was happening then, and what happened in, during the Bosnian War and in Srebrenica in particular, are mutually exclusive. Either one happened or the other happened. I find this really strange. These things don't have to be mutually exclusive. We can acknowledge that they have unfortunately been atrocities and mass death, both in World War II and in the wars that marked the disintegration of Yugoslavia. Indeed, Dada of Jasnots makes a spectacle out of impossible suffering in such a insistently, aggressively visual way. And Kovadi Seida does something precisely the opposite. It talks around it, but it never depicts in any graphic way the killings that took place during the Srebrenica genocide. That was a deliberate decision by Jasmila Zbanić not to show a spectacle. We know exactly what's happening. And sometimes in film, not showing something is much more powerful, only implying what's happening, much more powerful than directly showing it. And I think about it in these terms. Whose gaze are we following? Whose look are we following in this film? And if we were to be privy to that actual situation and the spectacle of the killing, the individuals who are murdered, they cannot bear witness to their own death. We cannot be witnesses. We are dead. So a witness is someone who survives something and therefore is able to tell that story. So the only other living person in that scenario is the perpetrator who does the killing and then walks away. And Yasmin Ozbanić deliberately does not want to put us in the point of view of the perpetrator. So in what way do these films help or what role do these films play in the societies? Uh dealing with with said trauma wherever they are produced or wherever they are they are screened what kind of impact do these films have on on that uh, discourse on that rhetoric on people's attention on people's psychology emotions in in dealing with uh, with that past with that trauma the films of the kind that i mentioned that are delicately and tenderly addressing very difficult past experiences that can be individual, but also extrapolated into the collective, 
are films that actually can do and are doing a lot of really, really important work in the post-Yugoslav region, which is a region that is still so divided along ethno-nationalist lines, especially if we're talking about top-down politics. And then when we get to the individual experiences of these films, I think they are a counter-narrative to this still dominant ethno-nationalist politics. Cinema has such power to incite empathy in us, to put us in the shoes of another, where we identify with someone who may be entirely different from us, someone who we have nothing in common with. Yet for that period of time that we're watching a film such as Kovadi Saida, we are with Aida, we are with her struggle, we are experiencing the anguish that she is experiencing. That power of cinema to then experience something like this, even if one wasn't there, even if one didn't experience that loss, is immeasurable because it can bridge across differences and divides and across borders. Our region is sadly nowadays obsessed with borders where there were none before. The film and such experiences, such affective responses to these works can bridge and defy those borders and make us realize, understand, and even temporarily identify with the person who has experienced such such an impossible loss. So I think that films are doing really, really important work on an affective level with the audiences. Yugoslavia and war aren't the only themes in the post-Yugoslav cinematography. There's others that keep coming back and filmmakers dealing with them, all for understandable reasons. Life under austerity and precarious transition to capitalism, transitia, what is transition and when does it end? When do we decide that it's ended or are we in the state of perpetual transition? This is the question that films often ask, showing this economic precariousness, dispossession. Diaspora and diasporic themes, whether it's displacement, forced displacement, whether it's economic immigration, leaving one's own country behind because one does not see any prosperity in that space. And what does it mean to leave? What does it mean for one's identity? A lot of these transition films are dark comedies again. As the director Rajko Grlić said, for us in the ex-Yugoslavia, laughter is a way of survival, but there is no comedy without suffering. And they tend to be by and about men. Bure Baruta, which translates as powder keg, but the international release bore the title Cabaret Balkan, is a Serbian film by Goran Paskalevich from 1998. In an interlocking stories for men made popular in the early 90s by Robert Altman's shortcuts and Quentin Tarantino's Pulp Fiction, it tracks a taxi driver across Belgrade to show the absurdity of life in Milosevic-era Serbia. Other standouts from or about this period in Serbian history include Rane, Wounds from 1988 about young gangsters, and Munja, Dudes from 2001, which just saw a sequel released a few weeks ago. In a Croatian parallel, Metastase by Branko Schmidt from 2009 is a story of four hooligans and addicts getting into trouble a few years after the war. As well, Jordanova writes, The relations between former Yugoslav republics are still an inexhaustible source of controversy and the shared recent history is still an open battlefield of interpretations. Sergeant Dragojevic's Parada, Parade from 2011, has a gangster and former paramilitary recruiting his former enemies from across the former Yugoslavia to provide security for the first Pride Parade in Belgrade. 
And in Croatia, Nietzsche's Sin, Nobody's Son by Arsen Anton Ostojic from 2008 centers on the father-son story of Isidor, a former political prisoner whose campaign for MP gets disrupted by a Serbian refugee who had imprisoned him back in the socialist day, and his son Ivan, who lost both his legs in the homeland war. A common thread in this crop of films is indeed outsider status of its characters. We can actually argue that being a person who lives in the post-Yugoslav region, one is always already a diasporic entity because Yugoslavia, for those of us especially who were born in Yugoslavia, no longer exists. So to be from a country that no longer exists is already, no matter where you are in the world, a diasporic experience. So diaspora and exile are very frequent themes for filmmakers hailing from uh, former Yugoslavia, whether they live in the region or whether they themselves have also moved elsewhere and are making films elsewhere. While most of the focus in the discussion of cinema tends to be on feature films, documentaries play a major role in dealing with the past. Etami Borian of the University of Zagreb sees three main tendencies in the recent documentary production. Historical documentaries aimed at deconstructing, reinterpreting, and subverting nationalist historical narratives appeared immediately after the breakup of Yugoslavia. Pekovic has been studying this group of documentaries in which documentary and fiction filmmakers such as Dusan Makavev, Goran Markovic, and Lordan Zafranovic viewed the past and the former Yugoslavia's past throughout their own film careers. Because at some point, all of all three filmmakers made documentary films about the former Yugoslavia seen through their own careers. And Zafranovic started to mixture his own, I mean, excerpts from his own films with journal films from Ustasha period in the 40s. And Makavev made this beautiful film essay called Hole in the Soul, Rupa Udushi, uh, which is, of course, wordplay because his name is Dushan. So he's missing, there is a hole in his soul, of course, uh, and he's trying to find it. Uh, and the whole is, of course, the country that is no longer. This was something that was made in 94 or 95. He tries to trace where his soul is and where it can be lost on the path. And by doing that, he also goes back. And I mean, Dushan Makavev was a highly controversial filmmaker even during the existence of Yugoslavia. So there is something interesting when he goes and tries to un- to understand both his own positions and his career and the state of the of the country and then Goran Marković made his film Serbia Nulte Godine Serbia Year 0 in 2001 where he filmed uh the 5th of October and the whole Otpor revolution and of course the Mi- Milosevic's fall and everything but then he also went back and tried to understand both the rise of Milosevic and Yugoslavian history by posing it to his own film career. Autobiographical, self-reflexive and first-person documentaries that deal with personal or collective traumas tend to filter history through somebody's memory. 
In episode 59, Island Baird, you heard Tiha Gudats talk about her film Goli, which is a great example of this memoir-like type of documentaries, as it presents the history of the Yugoslav prison colony through the prism of Gudats' family history and her own recollections. Serjan Kecha made one of what I would consider most interesting documentary films about Yugoslav wars. It was called Peace Motati, Letter to Dad, uh, where it's just a 48, 49 minutes long essay film about his own father, who was uh, volunteering on Vukovar during the war. How come his father volunteered in that war? And how can you, being introspective filmmaker, how can you deal with those issues? Like, how can you ask questions to someone who's no longer with with us? But how can you cope with that, in a way? And he does it so beautifully. He does it so interestingly. Finally, testimonial documentaries center on memories of events as shared by direct participants and witnesses. Darko Bavoljak's Goliotok, Bear Island, falls into this category, feature as it does a former prisoner and a creator of the prison colony facing the camera, talking head style. And Dubina 2, which is Dept 2 by, by Ognjen Glavonic, uh, goes back to the war in, I mean, Kosovo War, and uh, the massacres that are being committed uh, during the Kosovo War, where he uses uh, witness account from, from the Hague Tribunal, you know, and he goes and visits those places 20 years later. So in a way, it is a montage of sound and image where we see all those places where the massacres occurred, but 20 years later, while we are listening to all of the accounts of what happened during the witnessing processes in Hague. They're not only documentary films uh, telling us like it was or like it is. What is interesting about those films are they are equally beautiful and really compelling in how they are structured and their form and their stylistical elements are really interesting. So they're not only good films because or interesting films because they are tackling some some subjects that are important, but they do it in highly innovative ways. The more I look at Southeast Europe cinema, the more it seems that all important films from the region ultimately deal with historical memory, writes art historian Dina Jordanova. She's talking about the wider region, including Albania, Greece, Romania and her native Bulgaria, but her points do apply to the former Yugoslavia. History is treated as something to endure, to live through, a process where one does not have agency but is subjected to the willpower of external forces. Someone else ultimately decides your present and future. Shifting narratives permit the story to be told from different angles. Priority is given to some memories while others are neglected or totally eliminated. These conditions often result in uneven or choppy narratives of the historical past, present and future of the region. It may seem like a trivial statement, after all, unless it's science fiction, a film is by definition going to be about the past. Nevertheless, perhaps it's Balkan fatalism filtered through Balkan passion, the attitude I found so endearing and enduring of tomorrow we may be dead, so let's party today. And perhaps it's not so surprising, as history here is richer in its layers than Burek.
I have a dozen tabs open right now in my internet browser with films available on YouTube so I can catch up on my Yugoslav and post-Yugoslav cinema. I can't wait to watch them and keep adding to the list. It beats binging shows on streaming services any day. Next on Remembering Yugoslavia. Kumrovets was transformed into a political place and one of the places where uh, the ideology was supposed to be spread. One of the main uh, landmarks of socialist ideology. The Day of Youth continues to be commemorated in Tito's birthplace as a major defunct Yugoslav holiday. Why? What happens there? And what is this mythical place? That story in the next episode. Tune in wherever you listen to podcasts, follow to make sure you don't miss out, and subscribe to support us. That's all for this episode of Remembering Yugoslavia. Thank you for listening. Find additional information, YouTube links to the mentioned movies, embeds, and the transcript of this episode at rememberingyugoslavia.com slash podcast. Before you go, check your seat to make sure you have everything and don't forget to drop some coin in a virtual donation box to ensure next showing. Exit to rememberingyugoslavia.com slash donate and take advantage of one of the options there. I thank you and future generations thank you. Outro music courtesy of Robert Petric, the tracks Rainmaker by Petar Alargic and Epic Cinematic by Scott Holmes Music as well as sound effects by Over and Out licensed under Creative Commons. Film clips used for educational purposes. I am Petar Korchniak. Ciao! Kar je mogoče gromče? Tri, štiri. Od Vardarja pa do Triglava, od Žerdafa pa do Jadana. Evo i mrtin je poludija. Evo se je počaj pijot. Evo šta sam ti rekao? Ajde, Dante, šta si ta? Ništa, ajde, lipo, sađi, doli, sad će oni vidit svoga boga. Di su vrata? Vrata, vrata! Svijetli sunce, boba sjana, ponosi to sred Balkana, Jugoslavio! Vizno!